Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. I am your host, Jacob Shop, and with me, as usual, I have my good buddy, Evan Roosh. And who's that other guy over there? Hey, how are we? Whoa. Uh, hey, you might recognize that voice if Another you listen to all the here. other episodes. We got a, a returning guest, Austin Keeson, back on. They don't call it a three-peat for nothing, guys. We're here. <laughs> You're not wrong. So, That's Drew, true. take that. Yeah, is, is Keeson just the GOAT Gems of History guest, considering, I mean, name another one that's done three times. His middle name's not podcast for nothing. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> his nickname back in his Navy days was actually Radio McGee. Wow. <laughs> Radio I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that. No. Well, that's your new nickname. I hope you like it. Mm. Change well, your Twitter handle. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get Twitter and I'll change it to it. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us again. Yeah, thanks for having me. How have you been? Not bad. Summer's flying by, though. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, I know. Ev, how about you? How have you been? Good. Yeah, good. No new uh, real stories to report, which is kind of a first. No kids like to yell at. No dogs to really get too mad at. Um, Power went out here the other day. <laughs> yeah, power went out. And uh, yeah, just essentially had to live like cavemen. Like, because the internet wasn't working either, so I just kind of sat here, me and Brandon just kind of candles lit, sat everything. here, had beers, and played patty cake. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's still some people like in Milwaukee that don't have power from those storms. Still, the other day. Yeah. yeah, I think there's like twenty thousand people still without power. That's it, insane. Yeah, We Energy's like posted saying that they underestimated how bad the like the infrastructure damage was. So, mm-hmm. yeah. They yeah. just posted like uh, South Park when they did. They were making fun of BP. Like <laughs> we're sorry. sorry. <laughs> just up in the bucket. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. For reference, uh, we had some pretty bad storms up here in Wisconsin in the past, like probably like three, four days. Other yesterday, it didn't really rain, but the couple days before that, it was pretty bad. <laughs> How do we always end up talking about the weather? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Wisconsin weather. Because that's our first segment is the Wisconsin weather segment <laughs> i was gonna say hour but there's no way we spend an hour on it so yikes well we could find a way i mean we definitely is that what your topic is for today is just wisconsin yes, weather the Wonderful. origins of cumulus clouds i'm actually just gonna read the entire script of al gore's a burning I'm just, earth I'm gonna, i don't even know what the name of the I'm documentary gonna go. was i'm gonna go so. just gonna head out yeah you and austin can handle this uh, one well, sounds good everything in the app or something <laughs> Yeah, Evan is leading us today, but before that, as always, we have our round of trivia, so I will start off this week. So my question for you wonderful gentlemen, the deepest man-made hole ever made, about 12.2 kilometers or 7.6 miles deep, is in which country? A, the US, B, Japan, C, China, or D, Russia? That just sounds like a Russian thing. I don't know why. They're like, you know what? We just invented the Tsar Bomba. So we have the upper hand and booming stuff. So might as well, you know, see if we can find a way underneath the ocean. Just, yeah. What was the second choice? Uh, it's US, Japan, China, or Russia. We're going to go with China. Okay. Just because, I don't know, it fits. Dig the China. Hey, they built the biggest was, wall in history. Yeah. They could also have the biggest hole in history. <laughs> <laughs> nice hole, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gotta be careful with the context on that one. <laughs> Get your head out of the gutter. All right. Get your head out of the hole. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, 
us, and I'm sorry, but you're going to have to take that shot. Evan, you were correct. It was Russia. Hey. So it was during the Cold War, and they were just like, you know, we're going to try and drill all the way through the Earth's crust. And they got like seven and a half miles down, and then uh, they kind of collapsed as a country. So they just kind of stopped the project. Now it just sits there. How it, how wide? Uh, that I don't know. I didn't mm. look, but they like all of the Russian people around that area say it's pretty much a hole to hell because they say you can hear voices like screams coming out of the hole. Mm. And there's actually a recording from someone who dropped they dropped a microphone into the hole. And it's like the most terrifying audio. It's so like on coast to coast AM, it's like a a radio show that's on every morning and Mm -hmm. they have guests on from like UFO encounters and stuff like that all the time. But they played the audio from that on the show way back in the day and you can look it up and listen to it. But it definitely sounds like what I would expect hell to sound like. Really? Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty terrifying. You said seven miles? Yeah. Oh my gosh. You have to think if you fall down that bad boy, you just have to like get bored like three oh, miles yeah. in. It's like all right, you're this almost, is just you just like, hopefully your head bangs against the side of the you know the side oh, of the yeah. hole and it's like you just kill yourself. Right, like seven mile fall. My yeah, God. It's, you'd, apparently you'd have to go unconscious. Apparently, Japan oh, for or, sure the shock would just knock you out. Apparently, the U.S. was like trying to do the same thing because we were trying to do the space race with them and everything. So we're like, well, if they're gonna dig a big hole, then so could we. <laughs> and then I guess now Japan's trying to get in on it, according to the article that I read. But I didn't really like look into it too much. So hmm. I guess digging holes is just the way to go now. That's interesting. Well, you need to get Shia LaBeouf on the case. Yeah, <clears throat> Stanley Elnats mm-hmm. and okay. Hector Zeroni. <laughs> you betcha. Find some jars of peaches. <laughs> What an elite movie oh, that is. Oh, so good. Mark's going to be super pissed that about this episode, because one, we quoted Holes, and two, the topic today is just, he's going to love it. You so. need to carry Madame Zeroni up the mountain. <laughs> 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 All right, which one of you would like to go next? I can go next. Sure. Save the best for last. Oh, always. Always. <laughs> so, my trivia question for you two guys. What two countries were already involved in a military conflict? Before the beginning of World War II, was it A, Japan and China, B, Japan and Korea, C, Germany and France, or D, Italy and Egypt? (laughs) Hand gestures, come on. For the audience, Evan just did the uh, Italian hands. Yes. Hmm. uh... Contractually obligated every (laughs) single time we say Italy or Italian. What What was the last one? Italy and what? Italy and Egypt. Oh, boy. I know, a little tricky. I'm going with Italy and Egypt, I think. I'm going to go with Germany and France. So you both need to drink up. Damn it. Because it was actually Japan and China. That was my second choice. Mm -hmm. Ah! So it's kind of debated between the two. (laughs) Come on. So it's kind of debated between uh, historians whether it's called the Eight Years' War or the Fourteen Years' War, uh, depending if they want to count an invasion of Manchuria, which was at the time owned by China. But essentially, the Second Sino-Japanese War was between Japan and China, and it kind of was the start of the Japanese Empire starting to show their weight, if you will, um, just in the entire Western Western Pacific uh going against china then they l- later you know tried to invade australia 
Um, they conquered the majority of the islands, uh, Indonesia, hmm. the Philippines. So this is kind of the start of their uh, their tomfoolery. Gotcha. Wow. That's interesting. All right. Without further ado, here we go. Without <laughs> <laughs> further Freddy ado. In all right. So here it is. In ancient Asia, what animal was used for executions? Are used in the process of executions. We have A, the tiger. B, a rhinoceros. C, an elephant. Or D, a snake. Or snack. <laughs> <laughs> a slippery snack. I'm a snake. Yeah. Um, elephant. Uh, that's actually a tough one. Why do you feel like rhin- rhinoceros is just kind of like so preposterous it just <laughs> might work? Yeah. You know what? It's got to be... Do you say tiger? Mm-mm. I'll go tiger. Correct answer is elephant. No! Hey, let's go. So they just they, squash people's heads? They use... So it says in ancient Asia, death by, death by elephant, popular form of execution. could be. T- uh, they could be taught to sol- slowly... Break! No, oh my gosh, I, I can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get there. You're good. That's the problem with reading. So they could teach the elephants to slowly break their bones, crush their skulls, tear limbs off, or in some cases, they'd attach a blade to their trunk. Oh! <laughs> they'd teach them to like swing it and cut people. That would be the oh most. Oh my! Like so. that's the most heavy metal execution ever. And it's getting your head lopped off by an elephant. In the background, they're just like. Ah! Yeah, <laughs> and then the guitar riff was born wow yeah. weird well the crazy part they used it up until the late 19th century really so that's wow. awesome it's like yikes you hear that thing and you're like shit have you ever heard about the elephant that got executed what? like the no. yeah the i believe it was when um tesla and edison were doing their little battle between ac and dc power mm-hmm. and so to prove which one was better i think it was Edison just electrocuted one in the middle of a town square to be like, look at how good this is. Oh my gosh. I'm pretty sure that's the story behind it, but I don't know for sure. But there's, I think there's pictures because they took a video of it. So you can probably find that online somewhere. That would be interesting. A little fun fact. I've heard of a pig getting executed, not an elephant. Yeah. Well, there's a pig that got put on trial. Yeah. I think that's one. Whenever that was. Was that the trivia question last time you were on? For the... Uh, was that yeah? No, was it? That might have been during the, my trivia or one, question. One of your guys's, maybe. Yeah, because that was the, during the witches episode, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I well, right. I mean, regardless. Either way, go listen to the past episodes if you want to hear our other trivia questions. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and give us five stars on iTunes. Yeah, and while you're at it, follow us on all of our social medias at Gems of History Podcast on Instagram. Plug in at the beginning so that they don't even have to listen to us ramble for the rest of this. <laughs> right? Well, I just know it's my topic and people just shut it off after five minutes. So. <laughs> Uh-oh, here comes the dog guy again. <laughs> Bark. Uh, <laughs> Every <come> time. <laughs> All right, are you guys uh, ready to jump in then? Ready as I'll ever be. You say jump. What? (laughs) (laughs) You said, are you ready to jump in? I said, you you say it. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. I thought I was waiting for a how high. (laughs) Me too. Like, Mm, so if your friends jump off a bridge, like, are you going to? Like, well, 
if your friend jumps off a bridge and no one's around to hear it. <laughs> so you <can't> count. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So today for you two boys, we are going to be diving into what historians consider the turning point for the United States in the Pacific Theater mm. during World War II. Do we okay. have any guesses? Battle of Midway. The Battle of Midway, baby. Woo. Now, I think we've talked about this a couple times, and I know Mark's probably mad that he's not here for this, but I just feel like we really need to, or at least personally, I really needed to talk, to talk about this because I just, of course, watched a documentary about it. Oh, perfect timing. And so my sources for this are history.com, as well as the History Channel's Battle 360 series. Ooh. And so if you feel inspired to, after listening to this, and of course rating five stars, uh, just <laughs> if you're craving some more information about the Battle of Midway, I highly suggest that uh, Battle 360 series on the History Channel you can find it on YouTube. It's an hour long. Absolutely incredible. Hmm. Like, I'm going to be reading some stories, too, like firsthand accounts of some of the, you know, the pilots and the gunners, and it's nuts. And, uh, like, all those just always thinking about, like, those men were... 21 to 24 yeah right. i'm 25 now we forget how many like younger people fought in this war and yeah. then, like just get sent off after high school and stuff yep. it's kind of insane just think of what you were doing at that time and it's like oh jeez, right? i know like the... we're complaining that we had no power for like a day <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I had to like sit and talk to like my friend of like 12 years upstairs. <laughs> but yeah and like it's crazy the guy that sunk one of the aircraft carriers, one of the dive bombers, it was his 21st birthday. Like, he just turned Jeez. 21 and then sank a aircraft carrier. <laughs> All right. Pretty sick. Not, and lived to tell the tale, too. So. Well, without further ado, let's dive in. So the Battle of Midway was the U.S. Navy's decisive victory in the air-sea battle, or in this air-sea battle, and it occurred from June 3rd to June 6th in 1942. And with the U.S. successfully defending the major base located midway, this essentially dashed pretty much all of Japan's hopes of neutralizing the United States as a naval power and effectively turned the tide of World War II in the Pacific. Turned the tide? Because they were on the ocean. There's a lot of sea puns coming out here. (laughs) Ooh, I can't wait. And then the Black Pearls. Let's dive into it. Ooh, all right. (laughs) Oh, oh, I see what you're doing. You could say that this uh, battle had a ripple effect. Mm, I don't know. It made a big splash. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, after Pearl Harbor, Japan was continually trying to establish their clear naval and air superiority uh, in the Western Pacific. And essentially, if they took Midway, they would be very close for just a kind of a background uh, or geographical background, I should say. Midway was extremely strategic because it was located essentially directly in between the United States and Japan. And it was only, I believe, 200 miles away from Hawaii. So essentially, if they take Midway, they're, they destroy the U.S. fleet at Midway. They're right next to Hawaii, and then from there can essentially evade the western coast of the United States. So it really put us in a really bad position if we happen well, to lose this battle. And you think, like, going over to that, you know, is what you're... Uh, 1942. So this happened roughly so, six, six months, months after Pearl Harbor. Right. So that's the crazy thing, is if they 
and the one thing they bombed Pearl Harbor, but if they would have like continued mm-hmm. their attack, I mean they could have taken Hawaii too. Yeah, which is and if they have Midway, they have both of those. I mean, we're kind of screwed. It's kind of it's really ballsy though because you think of how small of a nation Japan is as mm-hmm. a whole. Like it's not that big. It's not. So for them to have this much pressure on the U.S., which is a relatively large country comparatively, mm-hmm. it's pretty impressive that they could have put us under this much strain that it could have potentially led to them taking over an entire coast. Well, that and just like extending extending the war. Yeah. Because it's like if we have to defend the West Coast, we don't have enough time and energy and resources to go and help out in Europe. Right. So it's like it could have prolonged things a lot. Right. It's like Hitler trying <coughs> to fight on two fronts. That's been pretty much what we would have had to do. Right. Except against two separate forces. Yeah, and you also have to think about it. So this happened in 1942. The samurai essentially ended... Like, stop being a presence in Japan in 1868. So in less than 100 years, they were able to go from a nation of still wearing armor and using swords to this absolute powerhouse with, like, several, or I think it was, like, six aircraft carriers, a ton of ships, and I'll get into the numbers for the Battle of Midway, but just completely transform themselves to essentially become a dominant power in the Western Pacific. Because the end of the samurai age, too, was when they stopped becoming so isolationist. So yep. they just opened themselves up to so much more advance in technology and everything. So Well, and you think, what other country has, like, suicide? Obviously, like, today, but, mm-hmm. like, back in the day, who has suicide planes? Yeah. Like, just to have, like, the samurai, the whole culture of the mm-hmm. honor. You know, it's an honorable death. You're doing it for your country. Yep. Well, they had kamikaze torpedoes, too. Really? Yeah, so they had, mm-hmm. like, manned torpedoes where they would pretty much send a guy off, and he would <clears throat> control where the torpedo went, and then Jeez. you either would hit your target, or you'd blow up by hitting something else, mm-hmm. or you would just run out of fuel and sink to the bottom of the ocean. So, because you couldn't get out once you were in it. <laughs> right. So. Well, I would probably choose explosion, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Make it <laughs> as quick as possible. Right. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, so despite the setback that the Japanese had the Battle of the Coral Sea, which happened just a month early, earlier, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, and I apologize in advance because I might butcher some of these names, I'm trying my best, uh, he was the admiral who oversaw the attack on Pearl Harbor six months before, like we talked about. He was convinced of his numerical advantage, and because of that, launched what he thought would be a surprise attack on Midway. So before we dive like any further into the battle let's go over the numbers because it's always cool to just talk about like how many men were there how many ships were there so the japanese fleet it had four aircraft carriers the kaga the akagi the soryu and the (laughs) hiru Uh, and for reference these aircraft carriers they had five each of them so each of these four aircraft carriers had five twin eight inch guns whose shots, or shells, I should say, exploding shells, could reach t- over 10 miles, 16 120-millimeter guns, and 22 25-millimeter can- cannons. See, to that, that doesn't sound like anything to me, because I don't know what that really means, but Austin probably yeah, it's, knows a It's lot. a lot, but, I don't know, back when we had, like, battleships for the U.S., we had definitely more, like, mm-hmm. higher firepower. But it's still a lot. Like, you can definitely, you have it in the right spot. You yeah. Know, the right targets, you can definitely make some damage. Mm-hmm. Make some noise with it, so. 
especially with like just being an <clears> aircraft <throat> carrier, they had two hundred and forty eight zero airplanes. Well, I guess I shouldn't say they weren't all the zero fighter airplanes, but they had two hundred and forty eight aircraft that could reach three hundred and thirty miles an hour. And they were faster than the planes that we had oh, yeah. at the time by right. quite a bit. So, I mean, these four carriers were, and just carriers in general, and that's going to be a pretty common theme in our conversation today. These carriers, essentially, if you lost one, you lost a huge part of your essential war effort because you could launch raid, like bombing raids. You could attack you know, ships from wherever just with the usage of planes. So these carriers were so essential. And it's a big reason why in this battle, the Japanese actually... I'm kind of spoiling it ahead. They shifted their focus from Midway to actually attack carriers instead, just because they were that important, like even more important than taking a base. I've played Battleship, yeah. Right? I, know, I, know that. <laughs> I know all these strategies. Yeah, all the listeners are like, yes, we know. We know. <laughs> got to get five pegs in the aircraft carrier, you know. Yeah, D12, D13. We got it. <laughs> and it was almost, I don't know, I just feel like they left it unfinished, like we were saying before. Like they attacked. Hawaii, you know, Pearl Harbor. That's smart because they attack Midway first. You're going to have an onslaught of, you know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, aircraft carriers and planes. I mean, because I'm sure that's within flying distance. So the thing is, they actually, <clears throat> excuse me, on the day they attacked Pearl Harbor, there was a small attack force at Midway, ironically. So they did bomb a couple of the bases that were mm-hmm. on Midway. Obviously not to the extent of Pearl Harbor, of course, but they did make an effort to, you know, destroy Midway. It's just kind of crazy to think, like you said, what if they just up and took Midway instead, right. as well as bombed Pearl Harbor the way they did? Yeah, exactly. You know, we're talking a completely different war. <laughs> they picked the date for Pearl Harbor so well, too. Like, December on a Sunday, everyone's going to be at church. Like, it's mm-hmm. coming up on Christmas. Like, everyone's going to be such on a low guard. So, And, well, to point one thing out, though, wouldn't... The thing I don't understand, yeah, everyone's like caught off guard, yes, but wouldn't you want it to have like more of our sailors on board? Yeah, that's oh, the only thing. Yeah. yeah, it's more people to help. I mean, but at that, you know, put out the blaze and help, you know, stuff like that. But geez, some of them ships, it's just you can't save them. Yeah, the amount of damage they did. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of that's one thing I'm like, yeah, probably could have done it different time, but yeah, I just wonder if they kind of looked at it as we'd rather take out what they have versus who they have. Right. Because, I mean, if you don't have your ship, what do you can yeah, really you can, do? Yeah, you can have as many people as you want, but yeah. yeah. No, that makes sense. So Your assets, yeah. Isn't there also a story with Pearl Harbor that, like, all the commanding officers of the Navy were in one building? Or is that just a tall tale that I heard? That I don't Not know. Sure that. Okay, that might I just, just be I know a, a lot of them were out at church. And that's, oh, okay. that's like around the time when they got attacked was when like mm-hmm. church was getting let out. So hmm. you imagine just like a nice, oh, this be just a little Sunday, maybe a little Sunday fun day. And oh, well, <laughs> that's not one of ours. <laughs> oh, <clears throat> Excuse me. So in addition to the aircraft carriers, the Japanese fleet had seven entire battleships, 150 support ships, which were destroyers, um, your fuel barges, your transport ships. Um, I guess I don't know what else would be included in a typical fleet. I don't know if you have back any then, insight on them. Not really. Back Do you know what happened had... like 80 years ago? <laughs> the ins <laughs> right. and outs of the Japanese prob- armada. They probably had like smaller scout ships and stuff. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure the whole dynamic of it. Like the fleets back then are way different than they are. Right. Today. Oh, you I'm know, sure. The type of ships and stuff, but. 
I don't know. Uh, and then in addition to that, uh, like I mentioned, they had 248 aircraft uh, and then 15 subs. Mm, I was going to ask if they had any submarines. Their subs yep. are dangerous. Oh, yeah. Just this. I think this is the first war that subs really made an appearance. Yeah, because the U-boats were like just coming about like to be mm-hmm. more of a popular item. So Yeah, the U-boats like kill count was insane. Like they took out so many ships and just like wreaked havoc in like the English Channel. Yeah, uh, just with like the UK and France trying to just deliver supplies. Like they couldn't get anything across because it was just going to get sunk right away. I mean, well, they're they the couldn't reason find why, it. Yeah, they're yeah. really the reason why we entered the war on the European front is because of the sinking of that passenger ship, the Lithuania mm-hmm. or whatever. Lithuania. Yeah. Oh, no, that's not it. It's like the Lusitania, Lu- Lu- yeah. I think. Ah, gotcha. I would have said Lithuania. <laughs> I'm pretty Lithuania, sure it's they took out a whole country. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a hell of a sub. <laughs> that thing was just floating out there, and they just took it out. <laughs> uh, and then the Japanese were led by Admiral Yamamoto. For the American side, we had three aircraft carriers. So keep in mind, we're down one entire aircraft carrier during this engagement. And our three carriers were the Enterprise, the Yorktown, and the Hornet. And each of these uh, American aircraft carriers had an 8x5 single 38 caliber gun, a 4x1.1 4 by, 4 by inch quad 75 caliber machine gun, and then 24 50 caliber machine guns. Now, more majority of that, what I saw a lot. was, right, more, a majority of those <clears throat> guns were essentially just used for like anti-aircraft, so yeah. when bombers were coming to essentially bomb it, those guns were essentially just for defense. There wasn't a lot uh, of attacking guns, mm-hmm. I'll say, because they were already worried about carrying all these bombs and hornets. And, yeah, it wasn't like Cedar Or hornets, land, wildcats, like, right. sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, like I talked about before, I was talking about more like the U.S. with their battleships. Obviously, that's more, that's an offensive ship. But yeah, the aircraft carriers, hearing what Japan had, that's, that's a lot for it's an intense, aircraft carrier usually. Yeah. You know, when you have like actual like mortar shells, you can post on like an actual landmark instead right. of just trying mm-hmm. to take down other planes. Yeah, the just again shouting out that Battle Three Sixty series, the way they break down like the guns and how devastating they were. It's insane that like humans just made these. Mm-hmm. But uh, in addition to the American fleet, uh, we only had fifty support ships. 233 carrier aircraft and then 127 land-based aircraft on midway the land-based aircraft we can't really consider too much they didn't really i don't want to say they didn't do much but they were mostly bombers um that essentially weren't as effective we'll get into that later really like dogfight aircraft exactly that's what i'm trying to say um and then we had eight subs Whenever we talked about the guns on the ships, I kept thinking of Transformers when they have the rail gun, they shoot the, the one off the pyramid. Yes. <laughs> That's like all I was thinking that about. Is so it's like, cool. where's the one with the rail gun? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so sick. Those movies. Wow. Uh, and then we were led by Admiral Chester W. Nimitz. Um, our aircraft carriers, obviously not back then, but present day, one of the class of aircraft carriers is the Nimitz. Yeah. So oh, really? The, I was going to say, it's a huge name in the Navy right. now. Yeah. And for, it's not the newest, but it's, they, I think the most, the most, or the most number of aircraft carriers we have are like Nimitz class carriers. So, yeah, for those note. of you listening that are like wondering why we keep asking Austin all of these questions about ships, it's because he was in the Navy for six years and he was on a ship for a majority of that. So, we, 
think he would probably know more than us. He would know a lot more than us. If it wasn't for him, I'd probably still be like, oh, and then the boat. (laughs) The boat did the thing. And then the boat went vroom, vroom. Another podcast that I listened to just did a... A series or an episode on the USS Indianapolis, which was one of the ships that got sunk in the war towards the end, and it was just like a disaster. But uh, basically, they said the ship went out and they didn't have any U boats or Japanese subs on radar going that way, so they're like, "Oh, your path's clear." And normally, these ships would they would uh, sail in a zigzag pattern because if there was subs, then they could potentially like go opposite of where the torpedoes would go mm-hmm. but there was one that was out there they didn't account for and the the ship got hit because it wasn't zigging or zigging and zagging <laughs> and it, so then the guy that was on like the captain got blamed for it and stuff but the japanese commander of the sub said like we would have hit them no matter what because i shot six torpedoes in like a strafe pattern across and so it like these guys were just undetectable like they just hit out there and wow. could take anything down at a moment's notice so yeah sub warfare is just so interesting yeah and like the lo- the ship logs for the US were so packed because of how many people or how many ships were coming in and out of ports that basically if something didn't come in to get recorded after or when it was supposed to they didn't even notice it half the time and that's why wow. the Indianapolis disaster was so bad because no one knew that it got taken out so really yeah wow i never knew that it's crazy hmm. that was a crazy tidbit <clears throat> so the japanese plan uh in terms of actually attacking midway they were going to launch a three-pronged attack so first there would be an air attack on the island launched from the four first line japanese aircraft carriers which we mentioned were the akagi the kaga the hiryu and the soyuru I think I got it that time. <laughs> How's uh, it spelled? How's that one spelled? Uh, the last one, S O R Y U. Okay, I would assume the Soryu. You. Yeah. Why? Well, I, so I keep on saying Sawyer because family. But, yeah. <laughs> so it's probably just Soru. Yeah, I would assume that you you got it right. I think. Awesome. As close as we watch anime, we know. <laughs> we watch anime. <laughs> subs not dubs, baby. <laughs> and wow, keys and left. <laughs> Bye. Uh, uh, second, uh, there would be an invasion force of ships and soldiers led by Vice Admiral Nobutake Kondo. And then finally, once the expected U.S. reinforcements from Pearl Harbor arrived, again, they were roughly 200 miles away. I was trying to think of a really dumb condo joke that I can make. Like, oh, it wasn't an apartment. <laughs> oh, Evan, your condo sucks. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that got really personal. <laughs> That's very mean of you to say, Jacob. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, but yeah, once the, uh, U.S. reinforcements from Pearl Harbor arrived, then a joint strike by Nagumo's forces and Yamamoto's own fleet would be waiting for them roughly 600 miles to the west. So the Japanese were essentially trying to set up a trap. So we would send our entire force from Pearl Harbor to support Midway. And then in doing so would be falling into a trap to a very much larger, uh, Japanese force. And again, Yamamoto's Yamamoto knew that if he was able to sink the U.S. aircraft carriers, that he would absolutely devastate the U.S. fleet. Like that was his. In the documentary I watched, they almost said that it was his obsession to sink these aircraft carriers because he knew once those were gone, I mean, we had no way to. 
I mean, literally no way to counter their fleet at any point. So do you know at this point in the war if we had already decrypted their transmissions and stuff like that? Yep. Yeah, so I'm going to get into that, okay. uh, talking about the Navy codebreakers. Because um, I know they were one of the earlier ones that we cracked, because in Germany they had the uh, Enigma machine that took us longer to yep. break. But Yeah, we can dive into that. So essentially the U.S. Navy's crypto... Crypto. <laughs> Dogecoin. Do- yeah. Dogecoin. The U.S. Navy crypto analysts... Uh, they began breaking the Japanese communication codes very early in 1942. Like, we figured that out. I say we because I was there, apparently. <laughs> but they figured it out very quickly, and that helped us out in so many different situations. I would kind of assume that it was more of a priority after they attacked us on our home soil that they right. just focused on, well, now we got to figure out what the else they're going to plan. Exactly, exactly. So in terms of the Battle of Midway, we actually knew for weeks ahead of time, that the Japanese were planning attack in the Pacific, and they weren't able to determine the location straight away, but the Japanese kept on referring to the attack place uh, under the code AF, which people, uh, the Navy originally suspected to be the Aleutian Islands, which are closer to Alaska, um, but just to kind of test it out, um, the Navy decided to say that Midway they sent out a false message saying that Midway was very low on water, that our water like supply was short, broken, whatever. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, Japan's radio operator sent out a similar message regarding an attack plan saying that location AF is out of water, essentially advancing mm. their attack up. And then it literally allowed us to know that they were coming to that specific spot. And then I'll get to it in a bit, but also plan our counterattack. So when you said out of water, I just imagined all of our ships just like on a beach. (laughs) Like There's no water at the island anymore. Will someone give us a push? (laughs) It's just the USS Enterprise. (laughs) There's guys like diving off of the piers just into sand. (laughs) Jeez. Um, so with Japan's fleet so widely dispersed, Yamamoto had to transmit all of his strategy over the radio. So kind of we're still on the code breakers. So this enabled Navy crypto analysts based in Hawaii to figure out when Japan planned to attack, uh, whether it was going to be June 4th or 5th. Like they got it down so close that they knew that it was going to be one of those days. And now I mentioned before that the battle technically started on June 3rd, but the Japanese attack did start on June 4th. So, I mean, we had it down to the day. So, if it wasn't for these code breakers, I, I mean, we were already outgunned by a ton in terms of aircraft and ships. So, it essentially wasn't looking that great if we didn't crack this code in time. So, with this information, Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, like we mentioned before, uh, he developed a plan to combat the invasion. And now, a quick point before I get into the counterattack, the Japanese also assumed that the U.S. aircraft carrier Yorktown which was damaged during the Battle of the Coral Sea, which I mentioned before, would be unavailable at Midway. So essentially they thought we only had two aircraft carriers. They had the four aircraft carriers. Kind of led into Yamamoto's overconfidence, thinking that, oh, we have literal double the planes, double aircraft carriers, what have you. But the damaged carrier, or excuse me, the damaged ship Yorktown, I'm so dumb, the damaged aircraft carrier (laughs) Yorktown... (laughs) was repaired in only two days at Pearl Harbor, which was just incredible. I don't know how they did it. I don't know the ins and outs of like ship work or ship rebuilding, 
But that's absolutely insane that they were able to fix just this huge ship in two days. So once it was fixed, it was able to rejoin the U.S. fleet. So Nimitz knew that the attack force would be coming from the northwest of Midway. So he sent his three aircraft carriers to the stage to a staging area roughly 200 miles northeast of their suspected route. And when the Japanese carriers were in range, the American bombers, uh, as well as escort Hellcat fighters, uh, were to launch and attack the aircraft carriers. So, now, on June 3rd, I mentioned the Aleutian Islands before. The Japanese actually did do a diversionary attack to the Aleutian Islands, which caused a group of U.S. B-17 Flying Fortress bombers uh, to fly from Midway to attack that invasion force, which they, of course, mistakenly assumed was the main Japanese fleet. Regardless, this was extremely an un- this was an extremely unsuccessful attack, but it marked the first military engagement in the Battle of Midway. So that's hmm. why it's technically on the third. Yep. Okay. Gotcha. And from all accounts, they did not hit anything. Okay. <laughs> Good. Good job. Which I, mean, I guess I'm not. <laughs> Very much not familiar with a uh, B-17 Flying Fortress bomber and the ins and outs of it. But, yeah, apparently they just did Sounds not hit anything. pretty slow. Was, yeah. Back then, you pretty much just drop bombs. There was no, like, guidance system. I was going to say, it sounds like a pretty just big lumbering aircraft. That's Right. Yeah. They probably just held a lot of fuel. That's why they sent them, because they could make it over there in one tank or whatever. Yeah, because, again, like I mentioned, the Lucian Islands were closer to Alaska than anything. But then, before dawn the next day, so now we're on June 4th, again, more B-17s left Midway for a second attack on this time the main Japanese invasion force, which was also unsuccessful. Mm. So, we're 0 for 2, boys. Good start. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, Japanese Admiral Nagumo, he launched the first phase of Japan's attack, which was to send 108 Japanese warplanes from the four aircraft carriers to strike Midway. After inflicting severe damage to the U.S. base, the first Japanese attack ended by 7 a.m. Now, surprisingly enough, they did do like a decent amount of damage to the base. However, the, hair, the airfield was still completely usable, and the U.S. anti-aircraft defenses were still fully functioning. Hmm. So I don't know what these guys were like aiming for, if they were like, <laughs> wow, fuck this Ikea <laughs> midway. This bathroom right here, fuck it. Dude, this bed, bath, and beyond, it's about to go, like... Fun shitting in a hole. <laughs> There's just a giant kite festival going on that they took out. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> Wait, are those enemy aircraft? <laughs> it's just little Johnny with a kite. Oh, man. So, shortly after that, just as Japanese pilots who were returning from that first uh, attack... Uh, informed Nagumo that another airstrike against the base would be necessary because, of course, they just did not hit anything. Uh, U.S. aircraft launched from our aircraft carriers and began attacking the four Japanese carriers without success. Ah. <laughs> we're we're going to get there, you know? One of these times. Honestly, Eventually. Just, <laughs> doing the research and like watching the documentary, it's like, did we actually win this? <laughs> we're like halfway through and we haven't hit anything. I don't believe you. So the reason why this particular attack uh, from the aircraft carriers was unsuccessful is because it was completely unorganized and really very much uncoordinated. So the typical process that the documentary showed was when it came to staging the squadrons, essentially, it was first off, the fighters would go 
to essentially clear path from the Japanese Zeros. Then torpedo bombers would go, and then dive bombers would go. But for whatever reason, on this morning, a plane jockey on the deck essentially broke down and caused a lot of delays on the USS Enterprise. And so some squadrons became very scattered. So some were like half bombers, half fighters, and half, or excuse me, half torpedo bombers, half dive bombers, half fighters, half torpedo bombers, very much mix and matched. And they just couldn't regroup for whatever reason. And another fun tidbit that I learned in the documentary, not so much fun, kind of like ominous, but on the day of this attack before they flew, apparently whenever they were served, like the bombers were served steak and eggs, they knew they were in for a really long day. It was almost like a like a last meal, essentially, for them. So one of the pilots who luckily survived this, he was one of two to survive this. Wow. Uh, he said... Like, as soon as we set, we saw steak and eggs, like, we knew a majority of us are coming back. And they were all, like, at early 20s. Yeah. There's a lot of truth to that, because even for us, when they serve, like, they'll serve, like, lobster and steak. Mm. Stuff like that. And if you know you're getting, you know, pampered a little bit, it means you're going out to sea for a while. So there's still, you know, truth behind that. Mm-hmm. Like, that is something they still do. I don't know what it is. Just want to make you all happy, and then all of a sudden, drop this bomb on you. All right, have have (laughs) fun. (laughs) Go get them. Here's the steak. But uh, it should be said, like, our torpedo planes, they were extremely underpowered. They were very slow. And they also had to launch torpedoes at very low altitude and a speed which made them super vulnerable. So, like, we talked about the gunpower that were on just one Japanese aircraft carriers. They were essentially flying straight at the aircraft carrier very slow very low too and they were kind of sitting ducks going towards these aircraft carriers which i found very different than the dive bomber so the dive bomber they would essentially fly at thirteen thousand feet until they were right above the target and then literally dive straight down literally take the handles push forward and just go straight down and one of the pilots that they interviewed in the documentary, he said that it took 22 seconds from the plane to go from 13,000 feet to the ideal drop point where you drop the bomb at 1,500 feet. And he said, like, yeah, your typical, like, 22 seconds. What's that? By the time I get done talking, it'll be 22 seconds. But in that 22 seconds, you have a Japanese aircraft carrier and hundreds of zero planes, yeah. like, coming at you, like, not trying to Longest let you. Longest 22 seconds Jeez. of your life. Yeah, he made it, like, the way he said it it's like yeah it's literally the you feel every single second and not to mention you're going straight down towards the ocean um so i just think like that's a tidbit i had to share because that's just incredible i can't imagine doing anything like that Mm -hmm. so when the torpedo bombers arrived to attack the japanese airships they were completely unescorted by the fighter planes like i mentioned before and nearly all 40 of the planes were shot down by Japanese Zero fighters. Yikes. And so there were typically two people per plane. And so, like I mentioned, one, one torpedo bomber made it back. And one luckily crashed into the ocean, essentially. So they survived. But okay. in total, just on this one attack, 76 pilots died. Jeez. Yeesh. Just because, I mean, there was nothing much that they can do is with just the odds were kind of stuck or stacked against them yeah. considering mm-hmm. 
However, <laughs> as Nagumo was recovering from what had just happened and readying the Japanese planes for a second air attack, a Japanese scout plane spotted portions of the U.S. fleet, including the USS Yorktown, to the east of Midway, so the northeast, like I mentioned, where Nimitz had essentially almost devised a trap for them. So Nagumo switched tactics and ordered that his planes that were still armed to protect the U.S. ships, or excuse me, to attack Midway again, they were to now focus on the U.S. ships, the northeast. So they literally took the entire fleet and switched course to attack these aircraft carriers because uh, I said Nagumo, who was in charge of the actual fleet, uh, Yamoto was off somewhere else, but he was under strict orders, Nagumo was, to sink as many aircraft carriers, if not all the aircraft carriers, because again, it was essentially his obsession. If we sink, if they sink our aircraft carriers, we're done for. Mm-hmm. We have no chance in the rest of the war. So switched completely switched tactics, ordered that the fleet and the ships now go to their northeast to attack the uh, U.S. fleet which was stationed about 200 miles northeast. So while all this was happening, the big like shift in direction for the Japanese was happening, one group of U.S. bombers was sent out and actually went to the original Japanese carrier point by mistake. <laughs> and when they got there, there was literally nothing There's... to be found. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. So they flew 200 miles, like two hours, and there was nothing. Yeah, that would suck. The hell? I looked it up on MapQuest. <laughs> the right spot. Damn it, Google Maps! <laughs> You've turned off your targeting computer. Is something wrong? Yeah, there's nothing here. <laughs> However, luckily, a Japanese destroyer was diverted from the main fleet. It was, it was on the hunt for a submarine uh, named the Nautilus. And so, uh, when I worked at the car dealership that I worked at before my current job, we had a shuttle van that we called the Nautilus. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Cause we, and then we had a, an older Vietnam vet that drove it around. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. We actually made like a tag for the key and everything that said the Nautilus on it. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. That's, oh, that's incredible. Uh, so these bombers, who were originally off course, they used that ship to guide them to the main fleet. And on the documentary, which I keep on referencing, just go watch it. Stop listening to me. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, they said that the commander said, essentially, we had two options. We'd either follow the ship and hope it leads us to the main fleet, or we can turn back and go back to like our ships and refuel. And luckily, this guy took the gamble and just trusted that this main ship, that this one <laughs> out of nowhere ship was leading him back to the main fleet. So he followed this ship and, again, like I mentioned, took them to the main fleet. Uh, and then about an hour later... Again, as the Japanese were refueling and rearming their planes to attack the U.S. carriers, another wave of United States carrier-launched bombers struck along with the squad that had been lost. So essentially, we were in no way on purpose <laughs> surrounded the Japanese we, like, fleet. with pinch a- maneuvered. <laughs> exactly. So I, you don't want to call it luck because these are obviously very brave, brave men, but like, holy cow, was that lucky. No. Because a majority of the of the fighters, the Zero fighters, which were supposed to be repelling these bombers, were focused on the new attack that they saw uh, coming directly from the aircraft carriers, the U.S. aircraft aircraft carriers, and then behind them was this lost like 
squadron of bombers that just snuck up behind these aircraft carriers and were able to do, which I'll get into, quite a bit of damage. Insane. Yeah, actually, think about it. It's like there's no reason at all. It's a good thing they broke them codes because it's like if we didn't have, oh, if there yeah. was no fleet 200 miles northeast, it would have came straight for the mainland and say we were, you know, say we were still up there. It's like, yeah, you know, knowing knowing what we know with the code breakers, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if they would have put their fleet 200 miles that way, but still, it's pretty good diversion. You know, even if, like you said, the bombers not planned totally, but right. Worked out. Yeah, code breakers in World War Two were kind of insane. Yeah, it's nuts. You have to be so smart to do that. Yeah. Like it's absolutely incredible. Like I researched the Enigma machine and how it kind of worked, and it's like a three-step process that goes forward and then back to like give you a different letter to for the code. And I don't know how, they they built one to reverse engineer it. I was like, how the, how do you even do that? Jeez. That's insane. That's just, again, I can't even comprehend. Like, no, mm-hmm. no way. Like, my brain doesn't even work that way. Like, I can maybe do 2 plus 2, but I'm more interested <laughs> in, like, making the letters look cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's just how my brain works, let alone to construct and deconstruct an Enigma machine. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so, the combined attack force, which was essentially, like Jacob mentioned, doing a pincer movement, uh, they... Hits the three Japanese carriers, the Akagi, the Kaga, and the Soryu, uh, setting them ablaze. So each was hit with by about three to five bombs each, hmm. which I thought was very interesting. Like it took, especially with the, I believe it was the Akagi, it literally took the last bombing run to actually hit it. And listening to the guy's story, he said, like, I'm aiming for the big Japanese flag at the top of their ship and. I'm going to do my best to hit it. Yeah. Like, that was his, like, dive point. He got over top of that, dove, and luckily hit the back part of it, hit the fuel supply, and as they were driving away, he said he looked back, and there was just a huge explosion on it. <laughs> Which, how, in like, one bomb, one kill. Yeah. Like, right. absolutely insane. But, so, essentially, they... I gotta stop saying essentially. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So after taking down these three Japanese carriers, they turned back and went to go back to our carriers, but there was no time to celebrate. Because with no carriers to land on, these Japanese Zero pilots turned in hot pursuit of the bombers. And like we talked about before, the concept of suicide bombing or kamikaze uh, bombing or just kamikaze in general is very much apparent. So one story, uh, which was shared in the documentary, a Japanese fighter pilot was literally out of ammo. He was right behind one of the bombers, and the rear gunner was so confused as to why he wasn't shooting. So he realized, like, oh, this guy must not be, must be out of ammo. And he's just slowly trying to get his propellers to the back of this bomber uh, to literally cut off the tail, taking himself and the, and the yeah. bomber out. Mm-hmm. And the rear gunner... <laughs> His stand was broken with the light machine gun on the back. So he said he had to basically like hold it like a shotgun and couldn't aim. So he was just like slowly going back and forth because the pilot was going back and forth. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what you want to call it, the tail of the plane. 
uh, with the little sticky up thing. <laughs> Let's call yeah. it the fin. <laughs> um, I think sticky up thing. The sticky up yeah, thing. Sticky up. And the Japanese pilot was going like slowly back and forth so he wouldn't get shot. And the gunner just essentially said, like, I just got to take a shot, aim for his head. And he took a shot. Oh my and gosh. then the way he said, he's like, I took the shot. And picture this is just like the acute 85 year old man. It's like, <laughs> I took the shot and then he was gone. <laughs> like the plane just like sunk and sunk and sunk and sunk. Oh. I'm like, oh, that is like the lightest way I've ever heard of. What a feeling that would be. Holy cow. Just, like, you could probably hear the buzzing of the You're, like, the staring enemies. death in the face, basically. Literally, yeah. Because, I mean, that Japanese pilot isn't going to give up. Right. So, I mean, that's just one of the stories that were just... Holy, holy crap. It's got to be such a surreal feeling. Oh, I bet. You know, because you're just sitting there, and then all of a sudden you see it dropping. And it's like... I feel like it's just silence. There's so much noise in the airplane, I guarantee it. But mm-hmm. in your head, it's just like... Yeah. Nothing. Oh, just yeah. Like, Nice the fresh air. Yeah, that oh sigh gosh. of relief. Like, whoo, man. I can't wait to tell the guys about this. <laughs> uh, uh, so, in retaliation to this attack, uh, Japan's surviving carrier, so the fourth one, the Hiru, uh, launched two waves of attacks on the U.S. carriers uh, located, again, northeast, specifically on the Yorktown. So I it just said, really didn't like that ship. Oh, huh? my God. This, this ship went through just... So much. Just this one battle. And, of course, the Battle of the Coral Island. Or the Coral Sea, excuse me. But, yeah, this ship just did not fare well. Let's say that. This ship is the uh, old vet at the bar that's just sitting in the corner like, you don't want to know what I've seen. (laughs) Right. Right. So, the Yorktown, uh, in the first wave, gets hit by three bombs. But the recovery crew was actually somehow able to to extinguish all the fires. Wow. So, in the second wave, the Japanese bombers, they saw the Yorktown, didn't see any fires, so they thought this was, like, a good-to-go ship, like a fully functioning aircraft carrier. So, they target this same ship, the Yorktown, with torpedoes, two of them hitting it again. And you have to think, like, of course, that sucks for the Yorktown and its crew. But that saved the other That ones. saved the other aircraft carriers because we were kind of down bad at the time mm-hmm. um, in defending the other two. So they, it was the first air, the Jap, this was the first aircraft carrier that the Japanese bombers saw and they didn't see any smoke. So they're like, yeah, let's hit this again. <laughs> the Yorktown's just standing there like, yeah, I guess I'll just go fuck myself. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> just like over the intercom it's just like you know, the pa system it's like yeah who just stopped putting the fires out for a quick minute <laughs> can we like just start a campfire on the deck or something like just figure it out now somehow the yorktown still didn't sink after this uh which i'll get to like in a little bit how it this how is it like the out. one part of this battle that i remember is that the ship somehow did not sink i mean just literally bones of steel wow So after this, the U.S. dive bombers from all three of our carriers returned to attack the Hiru and set it ablaze, putting all four Japanese aircraft carriers out of commission. Mm. Now, again, like we talked about, that literally just turned the entire tide of war. All four of their floating fortresses, their central 
bases out at sea were just gone. Because this, those four were the only four they had in their fleet, like as a whole, right? Correct. Yeah. Wow. So after this, Japan just had to go on the defensive. They couldn't be proactive. They couldn't do another attack like Pearl Harbor. They couldn't do another attack like Midway. The rest of the time uh, in the Pacific, it was the U.S. attacking Japanese-held islands, mm-hmm. which just turned the entire course of war. We we were no longer on the defense. We could just essentially plan our attacks whenever we wanted, set up wherever we wanted. This basically set up like Iwo Jima and all of those attacks. Yep. So. Oh, exactly. So though the major combat in the Battle of Midway was over by the evening of June 4th, U.S. troops at sea and on Midway Island continued their attacks on the Japanese over the next two days. The destroyer USS Haman provided cover for the disabled carrier Yorktown during the salvage operations, but a Japanese submarine arrived on June 6th and launched four torpedoes that struck both U.S. ships. Hmm. The Haman sank in minutes and the... Excuse me. And then the Yorktown eventually capsized and sank the following day. Hmm. So the Yorktown had two torpedoes from a sub, two torpedoes from torpedo bombers, and I believe two bombs bombs hit it. <laughs> and it still made it to like June 7th. Wow. And a that's real crazy. doozy of a time. Yeah, that's crazy. Can you imagine being a like a sailor on that? Like, can we go to any other ship? <laughs> Like, please. At least, at least it capsized first, so they had at least time to get off, <clears throat> yes. or it didn't just immediately sink. Mm-hmm. So, on June 6th, Yamamoto ordered his ships to retreat, ending the Battle of Midway. In all, Japan had lost as many as 3,000 men. And this is a very important part. Which included 200 of their most experienced and best pilots. Wow. They mentioned quite a bit in all the sources <clears throat> I looked at. These legitimately, like, non-overstatement, they were the best pilots almost on all sides of the war. Yeah. And 200 of them were gone wow. just like that, just through a different, uh, like, them attacking us and our aircraft sink, aircraft carrier guns sinking them, shooting them down, as well as, you know, the U.S. pilots doing a tremendous job sinking them as well, as well as, you know, I mean, all their aircraft carriers were blown up, say, so they I'm had sure nowhere to. Some of them still on deck, waiting to get right. refueled or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, nearly 300 aircraft and one heavy cruiser, as well as, like I mentioned before, the four aircraft carriers. They were all lost on the Japanese side of this battle. While the Americans, on the other hand, lost the Yorktown and the Haman, along with around 145 aircraft. And only 360 servicemen compared to the Japanese 3,000. Wow. So this is a big day for the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Especially like six months after we just got pretty much obliterated at Pearl Harbor. So Right. Yeah, a lot of uh, the sources also said like this was like revenge for Pearl Harbor. It was like it was the U.S. way of saying like it was a different way of saying like remember the Alamo. Remember that like. The U.S.-Mexico War, troops would always say, remember the Alamo. In this case, it was, remember, Pearl Harbor, and so on and so forth. You just think how much the morale would have changed, too, if we wouldn't have won this battle. Because if we would have lost this battle, taking two big losses in a row, like, we would have been really down bad if Mm -hmm. that would have happened. But this probably just pushed us to keep going a lot harder in both fronts on the war. 
Yeah, just oh, knowing absolutely. that you don't have that that opposition that's you know still on your back on the west side. It's got to be huge. Right. It all plays in morale, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. And knowing that you're attacking now. <clears throat> you hold the cards now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, there's no more, like, oh, we have to worry about Midway. We have to worry about the Galapagos Islands. We have to worry about Hawaii again. That essentially was done. I mean, we had the advantage. Yeah, the only thing on the Galapagos Islands we got to worry about is those damn sea turtles. I know, sea turtles, nice. mate. <laughs> <laughs> Those things are huge. I want to see one of those in person. I want to ride one in a battle. What do you, you mean? You probably could. They're <laughs> fucking massive. They're pretty yeah. good at navigating. Yeah. They know how to get to the U.S. So. Yeah, haven't you seen Finding Nemo? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Take those jet streams underwater. They're in a jiffy. <laughs> have to wallow your way. So like I mentioned before, uh, as a result of the U.S. victory in the Battle of Midway, Japan abandoned its plan to extend its reach in the Pacific and would remain on the defensive for the remainder of World War II. The battle also injected U.S. troops with confidence and drained Japanese morale, completely turning the tide of war in the Pacific in the strong favor of the Allies. Do you have anything in there about uh, how Yamamoto was treated after this? Because wasn't there like a huge thing where he was just like disgraced by the Emperor of Japan and stuff? Because of this huge loss, I did not see that in any of my research. Okay. Um, I, I, they could have just not mentioned it, but I mean, it more I, than likely probably happened considering the culture. Because I've mean, I've read about I read about this in like grade school, so I don't remember a lot of the details of mm-hmm. it. But I feel I thought I remember seeing something about how Yamamoto is basically just like really harshly scolded over this loss, but mm-hmm. I could be wrong. So who knows? Right? Yeah, it's kind of hard to come back from. Obviously. They'd- couldn't come back from it. So. Yeah. I mean, as it's called, it's the turning point of the war in the Pacific. So. Right. You know, it's unlike their, like, their pilots. If they're without any other means, yeah. they're pretty much suicide bombers right. at that point. And a lot of them did. But for the commanders, if they lose, it's like, yeah. what do you do? You, you can't go back and like face the emperor and be like, can I have one more chance? <laughs> we tried. <laughs> we lost all four aircraft carriers. But right. Yeah. That's I don't... devastating. <laughs> It's actually kind of interesting. <clears throat> I just looked it up. Um, just with the code breakers we were talking about before, they actually broke another code that identified that uh, Yamamoto was flying on a plane in April 1943, and U.S. commanders in the Pacific actually ambushed him and shot down his plane on oh. April 18, 1943. Mark's oh. so, Granted, this is holy <laughs> 1943, cow. but a little before yeah. he was born. But yeah, wow. but. Uh, yeah, that's, again, just another W for these code breakers. Holy cow. Yeah, seriously. And they say after this, I mean, that was, like, legit the decline of all yeah. Japanese forces. Sucks. Sucks to suck. <laughs> that is well, insane. I feel like was Japanese, I mean, you never hear about, like, ground force. Did they have ground forces or not really? I mean, it's mostly Navy was their big I mean, thing. I guess I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, their error in sea was, like, what they focused on, I think. I mean, they held us off at Iwo Jima pretty well, but that was also just, like, they bunkered down and, like, yeah. would do any Like, they hid in caves and would do anything to take us out. So right. mm-hmm. I feel like it was more just the fact that they were so dedicated to what they were doing. I don't know if that, it was necessarily that they were well-trained enough to mm-hmm. fight against, like, the U.S. forces, but... Well, and plus, yeah, I guess a land force, you know, it wouldn't really make sense just because of the number of people, like we were saying before. Yeah, like and, the population just 
I don't even know what, you know, population was in the 40s, but yeah, I it mean, can't be... They definitely, for great. as small of a country as they are, they definitely have a good amount of people. It's just right. also, you have such a small country, it's just hard to really support the idea of a land force when you can't really right. fight on your home turf without getting a ton of civilians involved immediately. Mm-hmm. So, you also have to worry about that, and so it's kind of a difficult scenario to be in. Right. Well, plus, have a huge land, you know, land force, but then who's going to do all your building? Yeah. Who's going to, like, keep resupplying? Right. Because that was huge for the U.S. I mean, because, like, all the factories, car fa- you know, oh, car F- manufacturers, everyone stepped up and they started making airplane parts and everything. So right. Just, everything went to the war effort. Yeah. Right. So. But, yeah, that uh, kind of concludes my topic for the day. I just wanted to do another battle again. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, we cover a wide range of topics on... I think I love that, though. I, yeah. Because I was actually talking to a friend of mine today, and she said that uh, someone told her about it, and she's like, oh, great, another like true crime podcast or something. But she was happy because we don't just cover like true crime and stuff like that. We branch out into like does, a bunch of other stuff. And, it does get a little monotonous if it's just straight up just murder here. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. and there's, enough, too, there's enough true crime podcasts that cover all that stuff better than we probably could that you can go listen to those if you right. want to and i mean i'm sure we'll cover some of the same stuff that they like we just covered the yorkshire ripper i'm sure mm-hmm. we'll still cover more stuff that's been covered before but i like it it's a good mix you know you have u.s history you have folklore you have yeah you know serial killer i mean it's we've covered everything. viking samurai a japanese pirate queen right <laughs> like we only talk about things that we want to talk about which yeah. i think is neat and that concludes our patting ourselves on the back segment <laughs> for the day. Usually, we start. It, usually, we make our guests say why we're awesome at the beginning, <laughs> but this is Keeson's third time, his third term. So, yeah, that that leads us right into the segment of if you guys have stuff that you want us to cover, suggest it to us. Uh, you can email us at gemsofhistorypodcast at gmail or you can reach us on our social medias. Evan mentioned them briefly earlier. But if you want to give them the uh, specific handles that they can go look for if they can't find it. Yes, you can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can also find us at... (laughs) Excuse me, that was (laughs) gross. You can also find us on Instagram at gems of history podcast with a underscore uh, in between each word. Uh, And then also, we still have plenty of shirts left over, so... If you're interested in buying one, just let us know, and we can make it happen. Yeah, we can figure something out. I think our GoFundMe is going to be closed probably pretty quick here. So mm-hmm. if you want to just uh, message one of us or message one of the pages for the podcast, we can set something up where you can send us a payment, or we can, if you're close by, we can set up something to get you a shirt. But yeah, we'll get you get you one if you want one for sure. Yeah, I mean, again, I bet you won't... Uh, Donate to charity. <laughs> I bet you won't give us five stars on iTunes either. Bet you won't follow us on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> Doubt it. And and all the listeners are like, yes, yes, we won't. We, we won't. will not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Do it for the kids. <laughs> for the I kids. mean, literally. Do it for the children. <laughs> this is Austin's Make-A-Wish. <laughs> He's not dying. He just really wants to. Can you one. imagine a Make-A-Wish and it's just come on this podcast? <laughs> like, I mean, first of all, sick. But <laughs> not- I mean, we're, we're flattered, but like, 
do you want to meet like LeBron or yeah, something? Like there's, <laughs> I feel like there's a couple other things that maybe could be better than this. <laughs> was everyone else busy? Or? <laughs> if, if, that, if this is on their bucket list to come to the podcast, I don't think their hopes are too high. Of <laughs> <laughs> Just like Loki roast. <laughs> but hey, I agree. He said it so softly and gently. It almost sounded like a compliment. <laughs> right, so like, like he's like patting us on the shoulder like, it's okay, champ. <laughs> he's literally like ruffling my hair right now. <laughs> Just kidding! I love this podcast. Bring me back. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Hey, Drew, what are you? Bu- are you busy next week? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. But yeah, I, we appreciate everyone that does support us. It's really cool to see all you guys hyping us up and stuff like that, and talking us up when we see you. So we appreciate all the support. It means a lot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I think that wraps us up for this week. So next week we'll uh, we'll see if Mark's busy. Maybe he can fill in and maybe we'll do a group topic again or if he wants to do one on his own if he's got time maybe we'll do that but we'll see what happens thank you again austin for filling in thank you mr austin thank you boys that was fun and we will talk to you guys next week see you later Bye bye